Hello fellow adventurers and welcome back to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop strategy card games. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together, we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. This week, I have the chance to talk to a fellow game designer again. And yeah, he is the designer of Memoir and Rift Force. And Rift Force especially is, is a game I'm uh, yeah, very interested about because it's a dueling card game that, yeah, that involves factions, drafting, combos, and many, many different strategies um, that you can explore whenever you play the game. So all the good stuff I love so much about strategy card games um yeah and so that's why i'm very happy to have the chance to to talk to uh, carlo bartolini today welcome to the show carlo hi marvin thanks for having me here it's a great pleasure yeah it's great that you take the time to come to the show and um share a little bit of uh of your secrets of game design with our audience um so i'm very excited to talk to you about um your games, uh, how you approach game design. But before we start uh, to get into the details, would you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about yeah, how your journey as a game designer started? Sure. Uh, so um, I'm Italian. Uh, I'm 36 years old and I've been living for the last nine years in Berlin. Uh, I actually started to design my, uh, my games when I was uh, a kid. I was eight or nine years old when I started to actually have the first game ideas. And, but at the time, I didn't really consider them to be game. They were just like kind of things that I used to create to entertain myself. I was thinking, for example, to the, to the, actually the farmer of my, of my grandma. I come from the Alps, so like it's, it's quite plenty of farms here. And the farm, like the farm of my grandma, and I was creating a game about cows and, and, and chicken and, and, and so on and so forth, or about like skiing, uh, uh, like, uh, like a race of skiing and in, in, in the mountains. And I was thinking to this thing, and it was like very uh, entertaining for me to play with dice and to play with uh, uh, with uh, rules and condition to actually create certain things that could be repeated eventually by some other people, the so-called players, uh, in order to to get some uh, entertainment out of that. And but after like this this very early start, I I didn't invest any more time in that, and I've been always interested and also quite I mean quite uh, I would say talented in mathematics. I've always enjoyed like resolving problems and and creating problems as well and i kept on creating uh, like uh, small games also during university i will study economics so always like very much in contact with statistic probability which are kind of uh, basic knowledge which i think and feel are very very useful for a game designer and and want to be game designer i mean if you want to be a game designer you need to understand uh, quite in depth uh, uh, like strategy uh, not strategy sorry st uh, st statistic and probability especially if you want to do like heavy strategy games or even middle uh, strategy games and uh, and I, have, I was enjoying like creating these games and these experiences and, and but i never really um focus into that 100 what happened is that when i moved to berlin nine years ago i moved actually to berlin to become a painter after having studied uh, economics so not exactly consistency is not exactly one of my strong points but i started to um to see that around us like in the city there were like many companies creating video games and especially like uh, free-to-play uh, video games for for mobile phones and before I started to say, to think, oh my God, there are people who actually create games. You know, it's kind of strange. It's like <laughs> the moment where you realize that uh, 
is something that you always love is created by somebody, but until you don't see anybody in your life doing that, you believe that to be impossible. And at a certain point, you see that there are actually people and people you get to know that do that as a full-time job. They say, oh my God, I want to do that too. That would be amazing. And before I started to, to do the things that was mostly uh, obvious to me and which was uh, creating board games, because I grew up with Magic the Gathering, Pokemon card game, uh, Warhammer, and I've always been intrigued by board games, way more than video games, to be honest. Uh, the only thing that attracted me into the video game um, world more at that time was the fact that way more money were invested into video games than in board games. But my passion was stronger, and my passion drove me to, to the analogic world before to board games. Before, when it was um, it was 2013, and I started to to, to actually made the, the ancestor of Reforce, which was I, I really love like Battleline and this kind of dueling games, uh, especially because it was coming from Magic, so it was something that was reminding me of that kind of word. And, and uh, I started to create this game where, uh, which was based in First World War with like uh, a trench line in the middle, and I was creating this two faction. And I started to feel how much I enjoyed the process of creation, even though the first prototype were really not good. Let's say like that, to use some not bad word, but they were not good. <laughs> but I, I, but on, on one side, I see the bad side of it. On the other side, I see, mm, but there is some potential into that. And, uh, and that gave me hope. Hope until the point like that um, four years later, in 2017, I kind of stumbled, purely stumbled into the Zonspielwiese, which was uh, this company just created in a ludotech uh, in, um, in, in Berlin, in the area of Berlin where I, I, I live, actually 20 minutes uh, walking from my place. And I realized that we were just, they just founded this Editionspielwiese, which was like a new company that just released this uh, Cottage Garden and this uh, Uwe Rosberg game. And, uh, and they were looking for another game, a sort of family-friendly game. And I had this memory game, which eventually later became Memoir. And, uh, you know, it's kind of sometimes chance, lack, synchronicity, call as you wish. But sometimes things happen, and this made me like uh, uh, this enabled me to actually have my first game in the market, and this gave me a lot of uh, a lot of stamina and a lot of energy. Also, because the game has been quite successful, and I have been uh, very much um, happy about how it like uh, worked out. And since then, I just invested a lot of time uh, into the game design hobby. Uh, being full-time for one year, one year and a half, and then like now uh, having this profession in parallel with my coaching profession, which is like my other big passion, which means like personal growth, let's say that. And that's it, I will say. That sounds like a like a great journey. And um, like many many of the listeners would would like to say take the same route that you you have taken to find a publisher to publish their game and give them the chance to yeah to to work more on their on their hobby and yeah make it a little bit more even if it's just a side hustle or so that is uh, what what many people um listeners of this podcast want to yeah want to achieve so i'm also very interested in in the topic of statistics that you you mentioned and how you think it is n helpful for your role as a game designer um so It would be great to learn a little bit more about how you applied that to to your game designs. But maybe before we get into that, let's um, let's talk a little bit about um, about Rift Force. Maybe you can explain a little bit how the game um, how the game works, and though that the listeners have a better understanding of um, yeah of what we are going going to use as an example to to move through your game design process. Sure, uh, Rift Force is a two player game. 
uh, actually set in a sort of uh, fantasy world. Um, it's a it's a game where there are like uh, four different uh, five different locations in the middle, and uh, and you have to select uh, a team made out of uh, four different guilds, which are those factions, let's say. So everybody has a team uh, made out of four factions. So four factions to me, four factions to you, and in total in the game there are ten factions. So two factions are out uh, every single game, and uh, you actually collect the specific deck of uh, each of this faction. You create your own deck made out of uh, which are like 36 cards. Each faction has nine cards, so nine times four, uh, 36 cards. And uh, actually the game uh, rotates around uh, three very simple actions. Uh, you can either uh, play card from your hand, uh, you can, or you can uh, uh, activate cards uh, by discarding one of the cards from your hand, or you can do a check and draw action. Um, the game is assertive. It's a, I will say it, it's kind of a race game because the game ends as soon as somebody triggers the 12 uh, victory point threshold. The victory point in Reforce are called Reforce, actually. And as soon as somebody reaches 12 or more victory point, you get to the end of a round and whoever has more Reforce, more victory point at that point, is considered the winner of the game. It's, um, it's a very elegant game. It's very uh, simple in the rule set, but we made sure that uh, it was very um, deep, the experience, in the sense, and very replayable. Uh, as also the name of the company that my friends founded, the One More Time Games, we wanted actually to really transmit that um, that kind of characteristic into, into our game, into Reforce. And uh, what I really, I mean, it's, I really enjoy the fact that it's very replayable also because like every time it's very likely that your team is different. Uh, because every time at the beginning of the drafting, you receive a random faction. And then, so you receive a random faction, your opponents receive a random faction, and seven other factions are revealed. So one out of the 10 is thrown away at the beginning. And then we do like back and forth until we have like three extra faction each, which means like one plus three, four faction myself, and one plus three, four faction yourself. Before like every single game is quite likely to have like, um, uh, like different uh, distribution. And uh, it's um, uh, every single guild has a different ability, which means like I, I don't know how much like I should give in detail in terms of like uh, in terms of gameplay. Um, yeah, maybe maybe explain just one or two factions so that people get a get an idea of how they are how they are different. Okay, so uh, uh, just before explaining the special, the, the actually the faction, I just give you like a slight introduction of the fact how the decks are built for any single faction. So. When you actually pick, for example, the faction of fire, every faction are they represent uh, uh, elementals. Every guild represents an elemental: fire, air, earth, water, and so on and so forth. Uh, when you actually collect um, a faction, a guild from the drafting, you also collect a deck made of nine cards. And those nine cards, they look like traditional cards. Before they have, like, for example, if you collect five, you have nine times fire. And four of this fire are have a number five on them. Three card have a number six, and two card uh, as uh, have a number seven. Uh, the number they have on top of it is both useful for activation, but is also representing the elf point that the elemental, the, the, the single card has. So when you play card, you actually have to choose uh, between playing between numbers and uh, and or colors. So you have to choose uh, either I play, for example, fire. And you can play up to three fires, or you can play up to three fives, for example. And before, and you have to play the card either in the same column, or you have to spread out them uh, in uh, uh, like uh, adjacent locations. 
Well, when you activate card instead, you have to discard a card from your hand. So you need to have a card from your hand before, and you need to actually declare either the, the number or the color of a kind. So for example, you declare, uh, you, you discard a five fire, and you can say, oh, I want to activate fives, and you can activate up to three fives uh, in, independently from where, uh, where they are located in the board, or you can activate, for example, three times fire, and you can activate up to three fires independently from where they are located in the board. Every elemental does something specific. For example, fire does three damage to the first creature in the opponent location, uh, sorry, in the location in front of itself. And it does one damage to the light behind itself. Um, or for example, light does two damage to the first elemental, and then you can heal one damage from another of your car's elemental around uh, your in your board. Or water does two damage to the first elemental, then it moves either one step right or one step left, so which means to one of the two adjacent locations, and where it lands, it does another additional damage to a first enemy. So the goal of the game is to actually, you, you score victory point, I didn't say that before, you score victory point by killing the opponent, or during the phase of check and draw, which is the only phase where you actually collect back seven cards to your hand, which is the third action I actually referred to before, you actually get one point for each area you control, which means each area, each location where you have uh, elemental and your opponent does not have any. You collect one point for each location that respect this condition, and then you draw back to seven hand. So we put the, the drawing action uh, connected to the scoring action or to one of the scoring action in, in the game. Let's say this could be like a sort of general overview of the game. A sort of like, we call it magic and contrast uno, uh, or it can <laughs> even more precisely be magic and contrast shot and totem. Let's say that. Okay, cool. Um, thanks for the short introduction. Um, I think the game um, is pretty cool. And I would like to, um, to start at the very beginning of the game. Um, to dissect it a little bit. So um, let's start with the drafting part of it. So um, the game has 10 factions and each player gets four of them. And you have uh, one, one is uh, put out of the game before the drafting start and one is, um, I think, assigned randomly. So why did you go with this drafting setup? Why exactly 10 factions? Why does everyone play with four? And why do you put one out of the out of the the game before you start the drafting and so on so how 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 really did you uh, make the decisions that the draft looks like it looks today so it has not been an easy choice that has been a quite tough actually um because first of all uh, as game designer we need to pay attention to one thing uh, uh this is something i learned from um a sort of Uh, a great Italian designer, Spartaco Albertarelli, which is one of the, um, of the most famous and remarkable uh, game, Italian game designer of the 90s. He once told me, uh, once you create a game, uh, always think that you're creating a product. Before, you, you're, you're creating something that, first of all, has to fit inside the house of the people that uh, is gonna, are going to buy it. Second, has to fit on the size of the tables they're gonna, uh, they have at home. And uh, also, in terms of production, you need to make sure that the game is actually as affordable as possible. Because the less it costs, the more uh, actually, the, the higher is the margin for the company, therefore, the more the interest the company it, uh, itself has to actually produce the game or to invest energy, time, and, and money into that project. Uh, so it's, it's very important that we, game designer, and now I'm referring mainly to the aspect of the production, 
uh, know something about how the production works and how actually the logic behind the, uh, how expensive a game could eventually be for the company. Because if you already consider those aspects when you're designing your game, once you actually deliver the game to the company or you actually present or pitch the game to the company, those aspects are mostly already been taken into consideration. And the company will actually praise the game designer a lot for doing that, from my experience. They really appreciate this fact. So uh, let's start from this thing, from this first aspect. Uh, once you produce, like there is a sort of a golden number, uh, which is 55. Uh, once, so for example, if you produce a game, which is like a multiple of 55 cars, for example, 55, 110, 165, but I usually stick to 110, which is a number I, I kind of relate to a lot, especially lately. Um, it's something that like gets the, the company to produce at a very good, uh, at a very good ratio. Uh, of like also of cost. Before, like I thought, okay, let's see how many factions I can fit inside that, that specific number. And a certain, and it came out like ten. Ten is also a great number for another reason, uh, because second, second, second reason to have ten faction replayability. So first of all, uh, there were two considerations to do. How many factions do we give to uh, to the players? There were two options, three or four. And we had like quite a bit of debate if we were like, we tested a lot with three, we tested a lot with four. And for some months, we were quite unsure about which was the best scenario. But then we thought, okay, if we have like four faction uh, each, uh, and we have like, uh, which means eight faction in total between the two players, and then we have two faction out, how many, uh, how many, um, uh, different possibility of combination that can come out. And it showed that mathematics and this year, like statistical probability calculus, like, uh, is like um, the calculus of uh, the different repetition shows that there were 210 different teams you can create for a total of 3,150 different matchups, uh, which was quite a lot, let's say. And uh, especially also consider that you can keep on playing the same team against the other team and the games keeps uh, on being engaging. We can also talk about that later if you want, uh, the reason why. Uh, but we actually noticed that um, the kind of experience were a little bit more fun with four than three or a little bit more aligned to our vision of the game. Let's say with three, this, the, 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 it, it happened that the experience was more stable in the sense that the people were getting more and more of the same uh, color, the same faction while they were playing. And instead, with four, it, the, the, the color-based distribution was a little bit more unstable because now we have uh, a deck which is made out of four colors instead of three. Therefore, like, is, uh, your hand is a little bit more mixed, a little bit more, um, there is more variety in your hand. But the advantage was that potentially it can create more combos in the sense that it can come out with more unexpected situations. So, uh, because if you have three faction, it's quite likely that what you actually expected uh, show up before, like, oh my God, and this uh, makes every single game looking almost the same. When, while, if you have four faction, the deck and the lack are a little bit deciding which, like, color come out at which time. And this, like, determines that you have to adapt. So we moved a little bit more in the tactical side than in the strategic side. And uh, a little bit, and 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 also like we we felt that it was emotionally more fun to have like more variability because you actually explore more of a game. Because imagine that you at a certain point notice that one faction is slightly stronger than another, and it's almost impossible to not have a situation because 
when you have to balance 10 factions, it's very, very hard to have them perf- perfectly balanced. There was like slightly difference. Maybe it's like one is a little bit stronger in more situations than the other. And in free faction, this was more problematic because given the situation is more stable, the, the kind of imbalance, the slight imbalances were more evident. In four, with four factions, they were less, uh, less evident. Before, we put a lot of effort on making the game as balanced as possible, but having four factions was actually giving us more um, air to actually be a little bit more uh, relaxed about uh, uh, coming out with a super perfect, like, to the cent, uh, balancing, uh, balancing everything to, to the millimeter. And this like was the reason why we went to four faction. And then like uh, having eight, if we would have created eight faction in the game, we wouldn't have had any replayability, but a kind of uh, mixing the same faction again and again. Before having two extra was the perfect thing because it was getting the chances to actually see long enough the same abilities. Therefore, yeah, you kind of learn by seeing them because the game has a quite steep learning curve. And this is one of actually the issues that we have uh, with player that they can see, oh my God, this game is, takes time to, to really master, which is a good thing for a lot of players, is something that maybe creates resistance to other players. Before, like, we felt, okay, uh, let's see, like, the, the 10 faction with 8 faction in play each time was good enough to actually show the players the same faction again and again, but always create something that will kind of break this this kind of uh, seeing the same again and again and was introducing new uh, kind of new meat and new a new experiencing into the flow. Like, oh my God, last time I haven't seen ice, for example. Oh, and this time I'm playing with ice. Oh my God. And next time you want to play with ice, my ice is out. So you have to adapt to a new strategy and you have to always think newly in the game. And this is something we forced. Coming back to the drafting now, this is like the reason why there were four faction and 10 faction. Now the drafting, why we choose to do it like that? First of all, we didn't want all the faction to be uh, available every single time. Easy trick, with 10 faction, you, you get rid of one for uh, uh, randomly at the beginning. Then you have nine faction. At this point, what you do? You deliver one randomly to each player. Why you do that? You give less control to a player, yes, but you, uh, you actually support the exploration of the players. And you kind of break their own uh, playing habits and their own playing patterns. So, and this can frustrate somebody, but we felt there were more people pleased by it than the people that would have been frustrated, especially from what they would have discovered by having a random faction in the single time. And second thing, at that point, we just revealed seven faction and uh, we go back and forth with the easiest possible drafting pattern, a drafting pattern, sorry. And everybody gets to, uh, to have three extra faction, as I said before. And uh, this was good, in my opinion, because uh, you know, at that point, so the, the agency, the fact that you can choose your destiny is still there because you pick three uh, faction out of, uh, of four, but you always have to adapt and you always have to, to see something different. And uh, I think this is something that it's, it's very much a, a, like something I want to have in my game. So to have like a quite good level of control and, uh, but also to have like the sort of um, randomness of the environment guiding you a little bit in, the, in, the, in, your, in your action, therefore like making you explore different uh, uh, areas of the, of, uh, of the games. And, uh, and this is why we ended up this way. So like uh, uh, a game where not every time all the nine, uh, 10 factions are into the game, but instead just nine, where actually one is random and you have to choose wisely which, the te- which team you want to build around that single faction that you have at the beginning. And yeah, this thank it. you so much. That's an awesome. That's an awesome explanation, and there was uh, very much uh, gold and value in your in your answer. Um, 
and I can totally see why it must have been a difficult, difficult choice to make because some people really enjoy that, um, that they can apply what they have learned in a previous game um, in one of the future games. And by, yeah, by forcing them a little bit into another direction, their, their learning effect is a little bit smaller than it could, could have been. And that will, will be very good for many players, but some others might, might enjoy it the other way um, even more. So um, I can see why this must have been a difficult choice for you. Um, and I think the way it came out is, is a very good one. So how often... Just a curious question. So, how many games did you did you play with three or four factions to come up with a decision? <sighs> Let's say this uh, play test for me. As I mean, I think like almost every game designer, I think would say that is quite trivial. But uh, play test for me is key. And I play tested the game before it came out on the market between five hundred and seven hundred times. I'm a quite dedicated uh, game designer in that regard. So I, I like to, desa- to design short games because I can play test them again and again, and I can uh, eventually reach a very high level of quality in, in the experience. Uh, let's say that we play tested, I think around, let's say 20, 30 times with a free, the free faction variant each. I mean, I have done this. Then we actually brought the game to a fair and we were playtesting with free factions. So we were also uh, playtesting with a lot of people that we didn't know before uh, to have some kind of impression. We were registering them. So one one person in the team, uh, one actually the two owner of the One More Time Games because we were we are free people. Uh, me as a game designer and the two owners of, uh, of the One More Time Games as developer. And uh, and uh, like they, uh, one of the two uh, Roman, one of the two actually owner of One More Time Games, spent a lot of time in actually uh, looking and investing uh, if like the free variant, the free faction variant was a really really valuable one. And I also spent a lot of time in, in thinking and to put a lot of thought because I really care about giving the best experience in to the players. And so even if for a lot of time I was used to play test myself as a game designer with like four faction. As I invite people to break the pattern, I have to invite myself to break my pattern. So I say, okay, let's let, let's think if let's think out of the box. Let's see if this free faction was better, because maybe I was wrong. And like, and and at the end, like we actually made the decision mostly based out of uh, of values and a kind of perception and taste, which means like, okay, do we want to have a game where we have more control, but less exploration, or a game where you have a little bit more exploration and a little bit less control? And we decided to go to the second. So another very important point in the design process is have a clear idea about the kind of experience you want to create. Because the clearer the ideas you have, the less you actually suffer in the process because you have a very clear tool in terms of values that drives, that helps you to take difficult decisions. Because there's plenty of small or big difficult decisions, the design process, especially when you have to collaborate with other people. I mean, uh, is it's by yourself even individually it's very hard and when you have to collaborate with people there is way more potential to make the game way better but you have to be clear all together to be aligned in the kind of experience you want to create how did you how did you actually do that did you came up with some high level vision for the game or the experience of it um, and then share it chat it with with the developers or was this some kind of i don't know let's say brainstorming session that you had together with them um and how did you document it did you put it on 
on a wiki or on a piece of paper or on a, on a whiteboard. Um, so, so how was that exactly, that, that approach looking like uh, coming up with the vision of how the experience of the game should look like? So, first of all, uh, that's a very good question. I mean, uh, first of all, you have to have it clear yourself. So you as a game designer, as an individual creating games or having the passion to create games as an hobby, as a profession, it doesn't matter. In my opinion, you need to have a clear vision yourself. Therefore, like, uh, what do you want, what, what kind of experience are you um, invested in creating? What kind of experience would you love your players and the, the player of your games actually to, to play? And this is something very important. For example, for me, um, my values are in doubtfully, uh, one of the most famous and, and like actually that what to listen uh, everywhere out today, but it's elegance. Therefore, like I want to create games that are very easy to learn and they are fun since the moment you actually explain the rules, they kind of feel like hmm, I can I can master it. I can okay, I already have some ideas how to play this game. But they have a very high level of, of depth. And uh, and this is something that really, really um, Uh, like it's something that is a very strong value of me, elegance. Uh, then, of course, replayability. I want a game that people keep on replaying again, again, and again, and again. So I always focus like crazy on quality. And uh, and then like I also have uh, ever values like keeping the game as like as cheap and affordable as possible. Uh, I want my game to look incredibly good or as good as possible. So I I, I want to create very advanced modern. Uh, game design. As I said before, you're a very ambitious game designer. Like I, I feel exactly as you do in the sense that I really want to create games that leave a dent into in the industry or that people keep on playing or or they actually keep on having their heart uh, even after years and years. And um, something that is uh, that is remarkable in the in the in the experiences in this in the actually in the history of a or a of the hobby into the board game industry. And uh, yes, once you have clear your values, it's way easier to actually have a communication or actually to to, to have a, a, like to, to interact with your uh, teammate uh, or with a company because they say, okay, this is my vision for, for the game. And then they say, okay, uh, this is our vision for the game. And you start to actually um, have a dialogue about that. Okay, uh, how we should do that. And this is this direction rather than that direction. And then you say, mm, but this aspect for me is uh, not so much aligned with what I would like to create. And then you go down in the kind of details before, but you start from this kind of macro idea, this big picture of the world. And from that picture of the world, you kind of consistently create something that gets as close as possible in uh, uh, as a final product as a final game in the market and but for example like i never pitch my game to companies i actually work with two companies uh, uh, so far i've been working for with Editionspiel Wiese and uh, with one more time games you can say yes you have just made two games in the market yes but i never pitch my game to other companies And the reason why is not because I don't like our company, not at all, but because I know that, with, uh, for example, with two companies, given that they were before in Berlin and then they're now a good friend of mine, I have a very good understanding of what they stand for. And they stand for, for the same thing I stand for. Therefore, like, I have very much, I very much resonate with them and I can have, like, very tough conversation with them where we really actually challenge the experience, the game, and we really try to make sure that we can get out of the market with the best possible experience. And you said before, how do we track it? We use Google, Google Doc. Google, there is like Google offers. I don't remember the exact name of that, but there is like uh, this uh, shared documents 
where we actually put down uh, the main ideas of the game, what should be in the game, what we think shouldn't be in the game, what kind of experience the game should be, and what kind of experience the game shouldn't be. Because you have to, it's very important that you define both what the game has to be and what the game has not to be. Um, in order to actually clarify the, the, the design path so that everybody is aligned and everybody is in spot and we can have like a common ground from which to uh, build uh, the experience simultaneously as effectively and with less effort as possible. Yeah, thank you. That sounds like we have a pretty similar approach and also pretty similar design goals for our game because we have we had the I think the very same goals for, for Mindbug for our game when we decided um, to start with it. It was also about uh, we wanted to make it as easy as possible to learn, but also um, very deep so that people can play it and always discover new new combinations, uh, new ways to play. Um, and uh, yeah, also make it very approachable with, yeah, Few few cards and few components. So that were were stuff that we defined in the beginning as well. Um, and when we came, when some difficult uh, decisions came up during the design process, we were able to look back at our uh, initial goals um, and guidelines. And yeah, it helped us to 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 make this these decisions. Yeah, and at the end, um, you will end up with a with a game that is closer to what you initially um, envisioned. And then when you don't have these kind of um, yeah guidelines defined, so I really like that approach. Um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the different the different uh, actions that players can take in in Rift Force. So you explained them in the beginning of the show. You said there are three different um, actions a player can take during a during a turn. So um, Yeah, tell us a little bit about how you divided them into three different actions um, that you have to to choose between. I mean, you could also have created a game where you just normally, in like in many other games, draw, then play a card, and then activate your entire entire board or entire cards on your on the board. So tell tell us a little bit about why you decided to to split those actions into um, into three different ones, and um, yeah giving the player only the chance to do one 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 per turn. Okay, um, let's start from this. Let's start from a value uh, of mine I forgot to, to share with you. Uh, rhythm and uh, timing. So I love my games to have a very good rhythm. Uh, it's like music, you know? They have to be sort of a symphony uh, or better. Let's say that when you create a game, it's like if you create an instrument for a player to be played. Actually, we use the same words, like uh, we use in music, with the player and the player plays. So we are like a uh, builder of violins or well, the piano or, I don't know, uh, saxophones. And uh, I love to um, uh, like create the best possible instrument. And I think like the instrument I like to create or the games I like to create needs to have a very good sense of rhythm, a very good sense of timing. And uh, I, I think very much when I actually start to visualize a game in my mind, I start to visualize a mechanic, but I visualize an experience. I start to visualize how how it will feel to actually implement that specific mechanic. How does it feel? How does it sound? How does it sound? I will say in my soul, no? I start to feel, oh my God, this excites me. How, how good does it feel? It's great. So the previous version, uh, before I actually got to the main, to the core idea of Reforce, which was like, 
making uh, making it look as a sort of traditional card game. And uh, and I, I got the inspiration for for the rhythm from uh, Keyforge, because Keyforge uh, has this kind of a new and innovative uh, uh, kind of system where actually it was playing the card not in a cost based uh, actually mm, mechanics uh, mechanism, but it was based on the on the on the simply color based uh, uh, like uh, system where you actually have three faction and you have this card in the hand, so you have to choose. Uh, you play this faction, that faction, that faction, and and actually the faction that you choose is actually the faction that you activate. And I really enjoy playing Keyforger. I bought a lot of decks. I love, I'm a crazy player when when I really love a game. And uh, <laughs> I got into my the, the, the magic back to the magic times. And uh, I I really enjoy the game a lot, and I enjoy the rhythm, that magic, that that sound that the game creates in me. And before I say, hmm, I want to create something which somehow feels similar but give like a very different experience to that and it's a very more a very much more minimal and uh, and compact game that everybody with just 20 euro can can afford and they can really play again and again and again which was something that keyforge didn't deliver in the sense that keyforge you have to buy a deck but after you keep on playing the same deck one against each other is almost always the same experience so there is no repeatability we see within the same two decks instead i wanted to create a game that is Mostly, I, I just took myself as a, as a benchmark, myself as a player, and said, "Okay, let's optimize this experience with few, like with twenty or sorry, twenty or so for uh, myself." And uh, I actually work in that direction. Um, so this this timing, uh, I wanted the games to be fast, in the sense that fast, but not like five minutes, but like between twenty and thirty minutes. And therefore, I say is hmm, we cannot just play one card per time. We it's better if we play more card per time. Also, because it feels good when you actually splash down the card. You know, I love to splash down cards. So you say pa 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 instead of just doing pa. Okay, zero. Pa. Okay, zero. In this game, I wanted more like splash, 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 attack, attack, check and draw. I draw back. So I wanted. I was kind of feeling trying to optimize this flow. Before, when you play, you play from one to three card, but most of time you play two to three. Uh, as I said before, you play either card of the same color or the same number. So I actually break down uh, the same system of Keyforge in two in two different levels because now you can play via via color exactly as in Keyforge, but you can also play via number, which was like another layer I introduced on 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 on, on the game uh, somehow like in Uno I would say. And and by playing the card down, I was feeling this this very rewarding feeling. Okay, I play free, I play free, and so on and so forth. Same thing happens when you activate. But I put a restriction because I say, okay, I want to people to activate more cards per turn, but I we need to restrict this 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 effect. So somebody has to discard a card from his end and actually refer to the number or the color of a card in order to activate. Before you cannot just play the card like that at the beginning without even thinking what you're playing down. Because if you put down all the cards, for example, all the fires, and you don't have any more fire in the hand, now you have a lot of fantastic fire, but you cannot activate. And you have to wait until you draw our card before activating it, you know? Before you say, oh my God, I want to play for card, but maybe it's better if I play two and then after activate. But, or, or maybe I can activate them through the number before I can still play a lot of card, but how many cards of the number I will have left in my hand? So it's like, you have to actually, like, it's, there's this counter, this sort of effect where you actually, you're, 
we are very much driven to play as much as we want, but then you have to think wisely because, oh my God, if I play too much, I don't have any more ammo or stamina to actually keep on attacking. And, uh, and this was a, like uh, evaluation uh, I did, and, the, and actually with one more time games when we started to develop the game together, we also did a lot. And um, and then the, the check and draw rules, which is I think one of the uh, best rule I came out with so far, is you know, probably my favorite. Uh, I wanted the game to be very clean and elegant, as I said before, because one of my main values. And uh, before, having free action would have been a perfect number. Because at that point, we will have like play for card, activate for card, free action. There was a lot of like elements like wrapping, uh, wrapping together uh, in a very uh, smooth way. And also, the less action you have, the better. If you can keep on having a deep experience having free action instead of having four or five, well done, thumb up. So, uh, and this thing like was, okay, I need to find a way to make people draw a card. For example, in Keyforge, the people play card and they draw card immediately. So you, there is no uh, interesting action that comes from uh, like the drawing phase somehow. The drawing phase is automatic. But I wanted the draw phase to be a choice. And uh, therefore, like increasing more the importance of timing into the game. Before, like you keep on playing cards. When you play card with uh, playing uh, cards, or you actually activate cards, you always uh, get rid of card from your hand because when you play card, obviously you put card from your hand down. When you activate card, you always have to throw a card away in order to activate the card you already placed down before. And here, with a check and draw, is the only action that allows you to draw. And you draw back to seven, so you immediately refill your hand. Uh, exactly like in Keyforge in this case. But the fact is that now I also wanted, okay, is, is something that you wait to do until you actually exploited your end as much as, as you can. But I, I, I choose to introduce like a sort of effect to counterbalance this uh, this action. So it wasn't just like action, okay, I just draw up to six, uh, up to seven, that's it. And I introduced the rule about uh, the, the control of the areas. So controlling of areas, it means that whenever you are in a location, as I said before, and no opponent is there, you score one point. Therefore, in this case, you can also choose to do this action as soon as you have like six cards in your hand. You can say, oh my god, I just activated my card the turn before, and now I have six cards. And I have a lot of cards, so I have a lot of options, but apparently I have two locations that I control because my opponent is not there. So if I check and draw now, I don't put lace down any card, I don't do any extra damage, but I get two points. And given that the goal of the game is to get to 12 victory points, getting two points is actually get one sixth of the point, which is quite a lot. So, and, and this kind of tension, which is created from this very simple rule, this is also very simple to explain, creates a lot of, um, uh, like, uh, of tension within the player and give, him, give, give to the player a lot of incentive to focus uh, even more on when to do the thing. And, oh my God, it, it makes the game more crunchy in a certain way. You know what I mean? And, uh, and also, another little thing, the check and draw rules it the rules that don't make people settle in a very small area of a board because this is sort of area control game in a certain for a certain aspect and uh, it's it's a game that invites you to spread but not spread too much or spread but you have to understand how well to spread and this is part of the steep learning curve understanding of the timing and so on and so forth and uh, the check and draw rules it says if you just stay in two location out of the five that you have that, that there are outside there it's very likely that your opponent is going to score three points, five uh, minus two, when actually is going to check and draw next time. Before this rule, the check and draw rules both works as a, 
as a as a rule that makes you draw card and give you like a good tension because like oh my god do I draw card now? But maybe I don't need so much the cards, but I need the points. And also like make the opponent pay a lot of attention on uh, your own hands or on how many cards you have in your hand and on how you are well or not so well um, displaced in uh, along the different location in order to understand when is the right time to do the, the, the check and draw. Because sometimes the opponent can choose to leave some areas free before your creature cannot be attacked, but you have to do it in the right time where you see the opponent doesn't have an incentive to check and draw. So all the small but actually big choices that you have in the game are what creates, in my opinion, this kind of rhythm and this kind of good choices and, and kind of they maintain the level of tension and the level of uh, death alive throughout the entire experience of the game. Yeah, awesome explanation again. Um, and I, I'm really, really uh, impressed how you came up with, with those decisions um, and what they do to the game. So um, that sounds pretty good. And um, another thing that, I, that, they, that it helps with, I think, is that in many, game design, in many games, you often have kind of a very complex board state. And that's especially true for card games. Um, and it's uh, sometimes difficult for players to not only to keep track of what's going on on the board, but also when it comes to to activating stuff, um, to do all the activation. And I, re I think it's a really a clever design and an elegant design, um, how you did it in, in Rift Force, that you only activate very specific aspects of the board or of the game um, very specific cards or lanes. Um, so you you are able to divide that kind of complexity into smaller chunks that are easier to grasp by the players. Um, and that, that is something that is very um, yeah, very very welcome by, by by many players of these kind of games. And that brings me also also to the to the next question. So um, from from my perspective the game looks really like it would be well suited for casual gamers and really competitive gamers as well so um, did you have one of those audience in mind in particular when you designed the game um, or was it uh, always designed to yeah to be played by by both both different uh, audiences oh Uh, very good question, both. Very, very good question. They have been, I think, two of the main uh, hard points to solve throughout the design process, uh, especially throughout the second part of the design process, which means the process I was uh, directly involved uh, when I was directly involved with the company. Uh, before, when I was not anymore alone designing myself as a game designer, but I was like uh, working with other two guys. Um, First of all, the question of the activation. So uh, I don't uh, like, I mean, let's say that I tend to be uh, very much um, drawn, very much uh, attracted to experiences which are compact, uh, which means like are not too chaotic. So I said before, I praise luck before in a certain way. I praise like, I, I call it... Um, exploration or like a little bit something that uh, reduce a little bit the level of control but i do kind of there is a level of balance and i tend to like things where i have a quite good level of control but not so much uh let's say for example keyforge is a game where in certain aspects quite chaotic because you have a lot of things out but 
he has a very clever way to reduce the things that you can activate from turn to turn. Uh, like, for example, in this turn, you can just activate the alien faction, no? Uh, and uh, in my game, in Rift Force, what we actually did, at the beginning, when I presented the game to the company, the only main rule that changed in the, among the three rules, the only aspect of the three rules that changed since when I presented the game to the company and when we actually the game arrived to the market is this. Uh, at the beginning, I didn't have any limit to the number of elements that can be activated once you discard a card. So you discard, for example, a five, and it's quite likely that you have a lot of five outside there because of the most like um, present card in your deck. Before, like it can happen that um, the most frequent card in your deck. Sorry, I, I'm not present. The most frequent card in your deck. Before, it can happen that you have a lot of five to activate, and you do like fantastic snowball because maybe you have ten fives. Oh, I discard a five from it, and I activate ten cards. Good luck to keep track of that, and uh, and good luck to actually visualize strategically how this thing will work out, and. This was creating uh, two kind of a pro two kind of problems. Uh, first of all, it was giving an incentive to people to overflow uh, to actually to make a float of creature coming to the uh, to the to the board. So before activating, sort of everybody has an incentive to play and play and play and play. So as soon as you have like 12, 15, 18 cards, you start activating because the more card you have, the stronger the activation were. And this was a big problem because we were considering if like having uh, just this play, 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 activate, activate, activate was a dominant strategy, that would have been extremely boring because everybody would have done that and the game at that point would have been broken and we could have trashed it. Uh, and uh, once, uh, at the beginning, when the, the, the activation was free, uh, there was the likelihood that somebody could actually apply the strategy. Uh, we never really see 100% if this strategy was really super, super effective, but in certain situations, absolutely it was. So, and two things to actually, uh, to contract this, to actually uh, restrict this problem have been to reduce the number of victory points you actually reach. At the beginning, we're 20, then we went to 15, then we went to 12, because the the, slow, the, the shorter the game, the less likely is the uh, snowball to happen. And if the, the snowball sh start to appear, it ends soon the game. So it's not that the player stays there below the snowball and suffering for a long time. They say, okay, snowball, done, over. Let's play again. And uh, and what we did was uh, like a very good idea from one of the shooter developers from Julian, actually. He had uh, he decided to um, limit the number of creatures you can activate per turn up to three. And then we have like, also like in terms of elegance, I said before, play free card, activate up to three after you discarded a card and free action in total. And, um, and this has been a sort of the closure of a circle. And because after, given that you have free activation, it's always better to start activating because you can never activate more than three. And you score points mainly by killing. Let's say that every game you score uh, eight to ten points on average uh, killing. So you you have to be the first one who keep this uh, killing engine going. So you have to make sure that you're, you always have uh, at least two or three creatures you can activate in good enough position to actually make uh, very uh, important damage to your opponent, like breaking the engine and the and the, actually the battlefield of opponent in a very sensitive point. So it cannot actually counteract counterattack you back in an in effective ways. And uh, and this was all the game. And then like it showed up that this uh, um, activate free has been a very good solution, a very also elegant solution to a problem that that uh, would have over otherwise uh, required more invasive measures to be applied in order to solve it. Because it was really it was really a measure a major problem of the of the previous version of the game, 
and uh, actually we come up with uh, with a solution and since that we noticed that activate free creature was a very puzzling was very good was very rewarding was very crunchy the depth of the game was still there and actually was uh, somehow even more there because now you have mm, i have four creatures i can activate now i have to choose three out of four before i collected it four so there was no strategic choice in that mm, but now i have to think better or tactical choice sorry i have to think better and then i doing a limitation you increase the depth and you a kind of better off experience by, by far i would say yeah that is something that i have heard many times from game designers and experienced myself that this is it's just a a great moment in game design when you find some kind of solution for a problem that you have and instead of adding something new to the game you yeah remove something else and solve the problem or you re reduce complexity to solve the problem or you reduce the 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 player um choices to solve the problem or you put them kind of limitations in the game to solve the problem because um it makes the game easier and solves the problem at the same time but most game designers when they when they yeah experience some kind of issue or challenge in their game they think about how they could solve it in the way of okay what can i add to the game what kind of uh, mechanic can i add or what kind of component can i add to the game to solve it um, but oftentimes the better solution is to restrict something to to add limitations or to remove something yeah um, yeah. Coming back to my, my question before, so um, did you design the game for casual gamers or for competitive gamers? Ah, it's true. Sorry, I forgot the question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no worries. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a very good question. Actually, I designed, I mean, first of all, I designed the game originally for myself in the sense that I, with Memoir, I came out with a memory game and I'm not like such a big memory game player. Let's tell you that if, if a memory game player exists even. <laughs> But let's say I, I just came out with this... Uh, Uh, with a game that I enjoyed, but it was not a game that I really get mad for a lot. And at a certain point in my in my like um, game design career, while I was designing other games, I designed this car game mainly for myself. Before I say, I want to create something I really really love, and uh, and this was has been the the the, the drive uh, behind Reforce. Once I presented the game to the company, we started to think, who can Uh, what kind of player can this game fit? What kind of niche can this game fit? And uh, so on one side, it was uh, a quite casual game because like very elegant, very simple, free rules, blah, blah. And uh, on the other side, it was uh, quite nerdy uh, because it's, it's exactly like reflecting my own nature, which is like, I'm a guy who loves family games and loves like Kennerspiel, also games that are a little bit more for experienced player. I also play some expert games, but I usually tend to be um, uh, like more uh, drawn to a family or, or family plus. Before, like I have this family plus aspect, and but I'm also like a gamer. I came from Magic, as I said before, and uh, I, I love this kind of special ability stuff, and I love like to uh, make combos. I love combos. <laughs> and before, like there was also this aspect of myself into the experience. Before, we start to think but. Is there in the market at the moment a good game that actually bridge this uh, sort of uh, uh, very casual, traditional uh, gaming experience? Like can be like let's say super extreme Uno, or like a little bit less, uh, less uh, a little bit more complex, uh, like uh, Shot and Totten, for example, and uh, this uh, uh, collectible card games. Is there something that really tries to bridge the two things? And I was also asking to to some kind of uh, shop owners uh, in Berlin, and they. And actually, 
they said not really. I mean, we have like some games like Star Realms and the kind of stuff which actually do this job, but it's is an area, is a kind of is a niche uh, in the market where no many games are there. No many games are there. Before I say, okay, uh, then we have found the right place where to uh, to actually uh, orient this uh, this this game also as a product. And therefore, we choose to go with a sort of fantasy um, graphics uh, and fantasy theme, which is more nerdy, indeed. And uh, and we decide to actually keep all the um, the elegance of the of original design and actually to make as elegant as possible. And so to actually please uh, or mainly like the, the people who like easy game. And uh, and now and then we actually trusted that somehow there were other people like us because both the three the three people of the company me and Vera Chu were really uh, engaged by the game. Before I say okay, we trust that we are not just the only people in the world liking this kind of experiences, you know, because you never know if a game is going to be successful or not. You you have a feeling, and this feeling can be true or not. You just learn it. You just understand if your feeling was right or wrong when it's too late to change the things, because when the game is already out in the market. The work has been done. It has been published. You also paid the money. You've done everything. It's too late to come back. And uh, so you have to trust in a certain way yourself and your own tastes and your own understanding of game design and of, uh, of, of games in general and, and hope that this thing will work out. And like, yeah, so I think like the game is exactly a, a crossover. And for that reason, we also market the game. Uh, we also sell to, uh, when we actually propose the game to partners or to actually to uh, the partners also, I think when they propose the game to shops, they say, this is sort of like Uno meet magic, as I said before, or uh, magic meets shot and totten. And to give like sort of a uh, uh, clear feeling of what it is. So it's something between the traditional gaming experiences that our, our grandparents were used to play and or, or uh, grandparents, grandparents and parents, and the, actually the experience that are more aligned with the ones we grow up with, like Magic, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, and whatever. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much for for explaining all of that about about Rift Wars, your game. So, um, is there anything else that you would like to share with uh, aspiring game designers out there that maybe are working on their first game, um, any kind of advice that you would like to give them on their way before we come to an end of that show? Sure. It's very important to, first of all, to enjoy. Uh, enjoy the process. Enjoy creating the games because joy is everything in this. Uh, we are creating games, so we are playing. And to, to, to remember that is the most important thing because there will be many moments where it's going to be hard It's really hard to actually uh, keep on going with the process because you will see project failing. You will see that your ideas are not working anymore or ideas which, with which you were very involved don't uh, look the same when they actually become physical games or when they actually become prototypes. And it's very important that you keep on enjoying the process of creating and you just do it uh, mainly at the beginning for fun and for joy. Then, uh, second thing, it's very important that you get very clear about what you want. Uh, as I said before, uh, I'm very clear, I'm very ambitious in the sense that when I make a game, I want to make uh, a really good game. I want to make a game that stand out in the market. I just want to make a game, okay, I make this game, uh, like a thousand of people play it and it's forgotten <laughs> forever <laughs> and uh, from now on. No, I want to make a game that, that says something, a game that stand out in the market, a game that it's, it's remember and a game that says something uh, important and a game that after years and years I come back to And I'm very happy and proud still. I say, and I look at that thing and say, oh my God, I did that. I'm very happy. So something that I do for myself uh, in, in a certain way, because I want to be um, 
like satisfied about my life and i want to live a fulfill like a fulfilling and a meaningful life and i want to look back to what i created or i contribute to create and i want to be like really feel okay wow i contribute to that very well i'm I'm happy i'm satisfied about that so and to do that you need to be clear because you need to see and look inside yourself i would say to look inside your heart to look inside your principle to look inside your values and see the reason why you're creating the game so you just want to create the game because you enjoy them you enjoy creating that and you want just to create something for your friends then do that but if you want more from a game maybe you want to become a professional or you want to really uh, you want to make money out of a game which is it's possible super hard <laughs> but it's possible or you want to really uh, make a game that gets played again and again and really creates very good a moment of fun and enjoyment uh, to people then the level of commitment that you have to put into the thing rises dramatically it really goes to the moon in the sense that it's a completely different thing so is this just a hobby something that you enjoy doing and even if you will never put a game on the market is okay then okay look at inside yourself check the answer and if yes say yes because you will uh, like like save a lot of time a lot of effort and a lot of energy that you that you can spend doing things that you enjoy more but if you really want and you really enjoy like crazy this 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 hobby or you really enjoy crazy like creating then take the chance to allow yourself to go beyond the, the the limit and to see what happens when you actually allow yourself to change your mind and allow yourself to learn from the greatest uh, like game designer that are out there or creatives because learn try to learn from as many people as you can and and allow yourself to be really like sort of give me like pass me the term naked outside there before like be completely at the service of what is happening and get all the information you need to create the best possible experience for yourself and for every single player around the world that will enjoy what you contribute to create great advice carlo thank you so much um so before we before we end the show um tell the tell the listeners please how they how they can Uh, find you in the internet or um, Rift Force because you you explained so much, uh, so many good things about the game. I'm pretty sure some people will try to to, to check it out. So how how can they do that? Where can they find Rift Force? Huh, good question. So uh, Rift Force, we have a website that should be uh, I mean www.onemoretimes. Good question. I don't remember the, the ending. Let me <laughs> check it now. Uh, one more times uh, should be .com. But if you check one, if you check for one more time on Google, you will find our website. Otherwise, you can find us on Instagram. Uh, should be like hashtag reforce. I'm not so used to use social network as you see. And uh, and uh, and if they want to to reach out for me, uh, you will find me on Facebook on my name Carlo Bortolini. And that's it. I don't have a website for my game design uh, practices and profession. Therefore, like uh, just contact me on, um, on on Facebook if you want to talk with me or get to know uh, better uh, additional informations about uh, what we actually discussed today with you, Martin. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Nerd Lab, uh, Carlo. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks for the opportunity to, to reach so many people out there. Okay. Okay. Then for the listeners, until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.